0: You're listening to Countermoves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Countermoves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Welcome to the latest episode of Countermoves, and I'm really excited about today's episode. I am with my friend, uh, Dr. John Wilsey, who is the Associate Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, of which I am an alum myself, and I'm actually— You're an alumnus. An alumnus. Thank you. Alum I, 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 is I, not a word. Alum's not a word. No. See— You need to actually have two PhDs to learn that (laughs) "alum" is not a word.
1: Was Latin your research language?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we're actually coming to you live from Dr. Wilsey's office up here at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. As I mentioned, he is a uh, church historian here at Southern Seminary. Uh, He is a Georgia native whose research interests lie in the historical interaction between nationalism and Christian theology. Uh, He's interested in the history of ideas in the Christian West, especially with regard to the church's engagement with politics, enlightenment thought, religious freedom, and diplomacy. And uh, I've known Dr. Wilsey now for a little over a year. Uh, He serves also as a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And I first uh, heard about him when he wrote a book on American exceptionalism, which we will Uh, discuss a little bit later in this episode. Uh, But just by way of a little bit more background, uh, you served as a William E. Simon Visiting Fellow in Religion and Public Life at the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University, Uh, and you're currently working on a biography of John Foster Dulles. Uh, You're the author of several books, One Nation Under God, An Evangelical Critique of Christian America, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, Reassessing the History of an Idea, and the editor of an abridged edition of Alexis de Tocqueville's classic work, Democracy in America. So, Dr. Wilsey, it's good to have you here. i um, looking forward to our conversation today.
1: I am very excited to talk to you today, Andrew. <laughs> and uh, we hit it off a year ago. We did. We did. We found uh, each in each other a kindred spirit on uh, our first conversation, and it's a, it's a blessing to know you.
0: You as well. So, the very first question is, uh, you're a Baptist, convictionally.
1: Convictionally.
0: So, you know, why are you a Baptist? You could be an Anglican, you could be a Catholic, you could be a Presbyterian. Why did you end up a Baptist? What about it?
1: Well, initially I became a Baptist because the the person who led me to the Lord when I was 19 was a Baptist. And so, I, you know, was interested in being a Baptist because my, my Best friend in college was a Baptist, mm-hmm. but uh, I became a Baptist convictionally because I was persuaded that um, mainly over the issue of baptism. That That's may sound right. obvious. <laughs> sure, it, it seems to me that a, a, a accurate reading of Scripture would entail that um, baptism by immersion was uh, was the appropriate mode of baptism. And um, so, initially, that's why I became a Baptist. But I became more and more convinced Southern Baptist because of uh, the issue of of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible. And um, I've always, uh, since I became a Christian at age 19, I've always believed in inerrancy. When I went to Southeastern Seminary in 1994, I went because um, Southeastern had a a strong high view of the inerrancy of Scripture. So, I'm a Baptist convictionally because of... um, Baptism by immersion, but also because the Southern Baptist Convention has always held a very strong and consistent stance on inerrancy Hmm. uh, from its earliest beginnings, beyond 1845, uh, going back to English Baptists and... uh, and early American Baptists. So my PhD advisor at Southeastern was Russ Bush, mm-hmm. who, uh, as you know, uh, with Tom Nettles, authored Baptists in the Bible, where they make that case, yep. that inerrancy is not an innovation. It's something that Baptists have always believed from their earliest roots, and uh, I, I've always loved that, about, about, about being a Baptist. Um,
0: so I, I want to follow up on that. I mean, why is inerrancy, in your view... I mean, a a crux, not only for theological conviction, but obviously denominational fidelity as well, denominational identity. So um, walk us through why inerrancy is ultimate, not just a penultimate issue. Yeah.
1: Well, how do we know anything at all about Christ? How do we know anything at all about God Mm -hmm. without an inerrant scripture? If the scriptures are not inerrant, it seems that there is nothing that we could ever say with any certainty, or with any conviction, or with any persuasive um, power, force mm-hmm. uh, that Jesus is the Christ yeah. and the Son of God, and that He was crucified and rose again on the third day, and that substitutionary atonement is is the is the means by which we are saved, because all of these things are contained in the Bible. Yeah. So, if the Bible is not inerrant, then who decides what is errant, and by what standards do we decide?
0: The, Sounds like you're just a crusty yeah. foundationalist I am a, with your epistemology.
1: Well, I don't know about all that, but um, you know, I know what foundationalism is, sure. but I, I, uh, and I know I know some people that are foundationalists, and I studied that in seminary, but I, I honestly just don't don't know how you can get around this also not not only that, not only just some, from a from a logical standpoint and a religious authority kind of a standpoint, but historically, yeah. the church has always held to an inerrant scripture. It's always been an assumption of the church that if the if the Bible is inspired, um, that is, if it originated in the mind of God, yeah. and God is absolutely t- trustworthy and and perfect in every in every way, then uh, you know the Bible is inerrant and authoritative and will not fail. And so, from a historical position, if you take any other kind of view, then you're an innovator. Yeah, yeah, you're so breaking your inerrancy from is the historical tradition
0: of the church. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm I'm um, teaching a class at my church right now we're calling it Essential Doctrines for the Christian Life. It's kind of a, a just a basic intro to systematic theology. And I focus so much in ethics that, you know, obviously I'm conversant in theology, mm. I have mm. my MDiv in that, mm. but I, I don't read as much in issues of Prolegomena yeah. as I once did. Yeah. And I was rereading some sections in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and I don't know if I had forgotten this or if I had overlooked it, mm. but um, he, he makes a comment that the doctrine of Scripture is not just a compilation of books assembled among men over two or three centuries. He argues for seeing the Bible as an act in the drama of God's yeah. whole plan of salvation. Yeah. So he, he he views it as not just a world historical deposit, but a, a cosmic mm. significance uh, that it we needed the scriptures yeah in this age of the church yeah um because it's only the scriptures that allow us to have revelatory access to anything that we would say yeah. is right. is true yeah. and what's so funny right now and you know I didn't even intend for us to talk about inerrancy a whole lot today but this is obviously mm. worthwhile yeah discussion Definitely. you know I've been following some of the discussions from pastors like Andy Stanley who have been making some really frankly, cynical statements about inerrancy. And, you know, one of the arguments he makes is, you know, the first Christians didn't have the scriptures. Uh, they didn't have a, a bounded New Testament. All they had to rely on was the eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Jesus and the apostolic tradition that quickly flowed down through history after that. And so he, he wrong, yeah. So I would. What do you What do you say to a, a an accusation like yeah. that? That that scripture is something that it's a, it's an accident or it's a, it's a contingency of history that develops th- three centuries after the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. But it's not a necessity of history. Does it make sense? What yeah. I, you know?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the the early Christians had had the Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus's ministry would have been completely meaningless. Because he's speaking into a culture that assumes the truth of the Hebrew Bible. right? So if if they don't have that, then how in the world do they know anything about a coming Messiah, right. a coming king? Uh, how, how, do the, how do the people shouting Hosanna, how can they say he's the son of David if they don't have the scriptures, right? And then they might, you know, with the New Testament, yeah, I mean, he has a point. In, in the first century, they don't have um, a Thomas Nelson, um, you know— <laughs> CSB Bible handy right. but they do have the the testimony of the apostles it's written down right it's in and written Already format circulating. and circulating among the churches by the end by the 2nd century you know the, the churches are already agreed upon mm-hmm. most of the canon mm-hmm. right so that's uh, an ignorant statement it's it's uh, and to answer your other question about you know is this uh, was this a contingently produced collection of books well i mean <laughs> from a human perspective, you know, maybe so, but, you know, it might be easy to, to come to that conclusion. But, but we take a, a human perspective, but we also look at um, the doctrine of providence. It's pretty central. Right. And, you know, we're told so much about what the Word of God is in divine revelation. Yeah. But the significance of the written Word, for example, I mean, um, to be able to Pass oral traditions down is significant, and, and, and a culture can do that over many generations. Yeah. But the written word, if you write something down on a page, it potentially can be accessible until the end of time.
0: Right. right? Hence, we have documents on display in Washington, D.C. that are now three, well, almost 300 years old mm-hmm. uh, that are still binding. Yeah. Because they're written word. That's right. I, I, uh, I'm reading a book right now on our beloved Roger Williams, mm. and— uh, the author makes the argument that Williams had a essentially an, an incarnational doctrine of Scripture. That it's kind of a, a living Word of God type ethos when it comes to Scripture, and and it's 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 much in line with this argument that Grudem makes that Scripture is what God intended for us to have in this era of redemptive history because yeah. it's it's how we have epistemological access. And if if God can become flesh, this is what Williams would, would argue, mm-hmm. so can the word of God come to us in physical form mm. composed on 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 papyrus. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go to our next question is you wrote a book on American exceptionalism. So I've I've got a big question. maybe you've heard it a thousand times or so, but is America exceptional? And by that, do I mean, or I could mean, is it theologically exceptional or is it politically exceptional? Is it both or neither? So when you say exceptional, what do you what do you mean? And yeah. how are you funneling America through this exceptionalist grid?
1: Yeah. Well, when I wrote the book, I wanted to see if we could recover the term exceptionalism. Is there any way that this term can be used uh, in an accurate way? And is, it, is there any way it can be used helpfully? And um, with with a lot of terms, like um, terms like justice, terms like freedom, terms like love, we use these terms ambiguously. They have Mm -hmm. lots of different meanings. And usually when we talk, if we talk about justice, we don't start by defining any terms. We just assume that we both know what justice is and we both agree on what the definition is, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is you can't assume those those kinds of things with terms like that. Exceptionalism is a term like that. It's a term used a lot. Um, You hear it used by politicians around election time. You hear it used in um, – you see it used in um, editorials a lot. Barack Obama used the term mm-hmm. uh, a lot. He notably used it way back in 2013 when um, – you know, in the in the context of Syria and uh, used it in an address to the nation. And Vladimir Putin wrote a, a guest column in the New York Times uh, chastising Obama for using the term exceptional and applying it to America. So that's pretty interesting. Right. Um but nobody ever defines what they mean. So you can use the term in at least two ways, it seems to me. Historically, it, it looks like you can use the term in at least two ways. You can use it theologically or you can use it politically or maybe even socially, um, perhaps economically as well. But you can use it um, – so you can use it you know, with religious overtones or you can use it with uh, uh, political or sociological overtones. And I think if you use it in a political context, if you use the term in a social context – it's a lot more likely that you're going to be able to use it in a historically accurate uh, way than if you use it in a theological context. Yeah. So if you if you try to apply the term exceptional to America in that we're God's chosen people or we're God's elect nation with a divine mission uh, or that this is a sacred land that God has given us or that we have some kind of innocent uh, golden age, some kind of innocent past to recover or— um, you know, we have some kind of innocence, some kind of moral regeneration in our character that everything we do is right. Uh, those are all theological usages, theological applications of the term, and they're they're in error. They're theologically in error. Mm-hmm. They're also practically in error, historically in error. Uh, but it's interesting. The idea that America is God's chosen people is an old idea. It goes a long way back. It's, a, it's an idea that that's held consistently in, in every generation— uh, of American history, going back to the Puritans, going back to the 17th century, it's uh, articulated in different ways and around the contours of different uh, historical contexts. But the idea that America is God's chosen people is is a very old idea. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't a, this isn't a new idea that comes out of the late 20th century. So in the book, I try to give a history of the of the concept, the history of its application, theologically and politically and socially. Mm-hmm. And try to argue that exceptionalism is uh, America is exceptional, mm-hmm. but exceptionalism, in the words of a uh, of a sociologist who wrote on American exceptionalism in the in the in the fifties and sixties, Seymour um, Martin Lipset, he called American exceptionalism a double edged sword, mm. in that exceptionalism has good. Good qualities, positive things, and also a lot of bad things. You know, America has more people in prison per capita than any other country in the world. That makes us exceptional. Sure, sure. That's a sociological uh, and uh, and economic kind of a reality. So exceptionalism has to be precisely defined. Um, Is America an exceptional nation? Definitely it is. But we're not the chosen people of God.
0: So I'm going to follow up with this question, and I want to talk a little bit about— civil religion, which you write about in your book as well. I remember one of the first things we kind of bonded over was we both have a, a rich appreciation for philosophical conservatism, the conservative tradition. right? And you're really into de, de Tocqueville studies, and I admire him as well. And de Tocqueville saw a, a definite instrumental good for the role of religion yes. in society. Yes. So I would love to hear from you. Uh, There are dangers of civil religion. Yeah. So in your view, and this might be a sociological question in some sense, is is civil religion a necessity for a functioning political society? Is it a problem or is it simply just an inevitability? So I, I guess, how do you cut through the problems with civil religion to get to a place where we also don't want atheism to be the norm either, but without falling into ceremonial deism.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that in well, Tocqueville noticed this. When Tocqueville came to America in the 1830s, 1831 and 32, he was struck by the fact that America has no established church, but Americans are the most religious people he's ever seen anywhere else in the yeah. world. <laughs> and the most religiously free, but also the most— um, the people that are the most informed by christian morality than anywhere else. And he ascribed to that the power of the preaching of the of the in the churches, right? He said that uh, he said very famously that the um, that religion informs the mores, the customs, mm. the what he called the habits of the heart. Um Good. and that those mores inform the laws and that what's most important is the mores, the laws are secondary in importance mm. because the laws the laws derive from the mores, and the mores are informed by religion. Right. So, in America, in, with the in the absence of a, of an established church, uh, a civil religion, I think is I don't know if it's logically necessary, but it's certainly uh, historically, um, it's always been there. Mm-hmm. It takes different forms, and in America, uh, there are others who have argued this um, that in America. Civil religion is, is informed maybe perhaps most powerfully through the context of war, hmm. right? Okay. So Americans have always been at war. You know, that you we, we hear people say, complain that, you know, we've been at war now for 20 years, that, you know, kids coming into college these days they don't know anything else except for a nation at war. Well, that's kind of the norm. I mean, every generation in America has been a fighting generation. Hmm. Um, there's never been really a moment in American history where, you know, we haven't been fighting somebody. Uh, sometimes the wars are big. Sometimes they're more, you know, much more small. And sometimes they're not known to everybody that, you know, not known to the to the citizenry. But Americans have always been at war. We've always been fighting. We're a nation that's been at war almost continuously since the inception of the nation, either against Native Americans or against people who are opposing our interests in Latin America or the Caribbean, we even invaded the Soviet Union in 1919 with the British. Most people don't know that, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, have an, we had an expeditionary force with the British to uh, aid the white Russians in trying to have a counter-revolution in 1919 after World War One. So we've had troops deployed all over the world. We've been fighting. Uh, we're a war-fighting nation, which um, you know may come as a shock to you, but uh, the, the other— Big Republican history, the Romans—they were also at war all the time. <laughs> so it's—it's it's, it, in a way, it's not surprising that we would be at war uh, a lot because of our, you know, the the, the historical circumstances that we found ourselves in um, at our founding and our colonial foundings and then the national founding. But wars seem to um, be a very inf- influential, very significant feature in the formation of our civil religion. Mm-hmm. And civil religion, um, this has also been argued by others. I, I believe that this is true, that civil religion has the effect of uniting the, the nation. Right.
0: That one nation under God. Yeah. That Eisenhower oversees yeah. with the, our coinage. Yeah. National mo- I don't know if that's a national motto or not. It's the national motto. But That, that comes in in the 50s. Yeah, 1954.
1: In the context of a great
0: yeah. conflict over... over 1956,
1: communism. yeah. 1956. So in 54... Under God was added to the pledge, and then in 56, I think that's right, One Nation Under God. You can Google it, but I'm pretty sure that's the order of things.
0: I have not considered this as a facet of of conflict. That's
1: Yeah, like One Nation Under God, or excuse me, um, well, Under God, definitely, and then um, In God We Trust. Those two sayings, in, in God We Trust, is the national motto. It doesn't replace A Pluribus Unum, but it's added alongside of A, a Pluribus Unum as, a, as the national motto. Yeah in the context of the cold war we were in a you know an existential conflict with the soviet union which was an atheistic society yeah. opposed to christianity opposed to god and the Amer- united states wanted to differentiate itself morally and and metaphysically from this godless communism yeah. So even that, you know, one nation under God, do I believe that we're – yeah, absolutely. But it's also – it's freighted with, with – with, um,
0: with, with its own problems. Yeah, right? yeah. How do you – that confessionalism, again, versus the deism yeah. of, of yeah. civic religion. yeah. So you're Baptist, as we've discussed. Baptists have a long genealogical tradition of religious liberty – which brings me to one of our heroes we've we've kind of uh, expressed some mutual admiration around, which is Roger Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, just would love to hear, in your perspective, as a historian, how significant is an individual like Williams in the Baptist tradition when it comes to this innovation known as religious liberty yeah. in, in North America?
1: Yeah. Well, I think Roger Williams is, is, is very important, but I— I don't want to give him too much credit, okay? Because religious freedom is something that is near and dear to Baptist identity, going all the way back to its its form, you know, its its inception yeah. in the early sixteen hundreds, with Thomas Helwys and, and John Smith, who of course established the first Baptist congregation in Amsterdam, and then Thomas Helwys mm-hmm. comes to to England and establishes the first English speaking Baptist church outside of London in sixteen oh nine. And he dies in 1616 um, in prison Mm. after telling James I that uh, in matters of temporal authority, you're the king, and I'm a subject, and I submit to your authority. But in terms of spiritual authority, you are no better than I am. We are on level ground, and uh, you can't compel my conscience. And so, he went to New, Newgate Prison and died there in 1616. Wow. So, uh, Roger Williams, um, coming along about 30 years later, a generation later, arguing many of the same things that, that Helwes argued, especially Helwes is the first to argue in English, the English language, that um, uh, for full religious freedom, not just toleration, right? Right. That even the Turk, even the Jew, yeah. even the infidel should be left alone. With regard to conscience the government doesn't have any jurisdiction over the conscience and over the the individual's um, uh, worship and practice uh, of, of of their religion williams says the same thing uh, but williams says it in an american context right. and he says it in the context of of the puritan um christian commonwealth of massachusetts which is a very interesting debate that he has with john cotton right but certainly williams has the the more biblical the more biblical view and emphasizing Jesus' words about my kingdom is not of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the thing that God's, render to God the things that are God's. A division between uh, two two kinds of authority, temporal authority and then also spiritual authority. Uh, Williams is a very important person in that. Uh, and also arguing, going a step further than Halas does and arguing for disestablishment. Yeah. Which is the logical conclusion of religious freedom. But then there are others, of course, William Penn, he's not a Baptist, but uh, William Penn being very important in this, Isaac Bacchus, John Leland, and then, of course, Jefferson and Madison, who uh, who see that uh, religious freedom is, is built into the Constitution.
0: That, that was one of the – in my studies with especially the Baptist contributions to religious liberty was to see how much at the tip of the spear yeah. they were on this yeah. issue. Yeah, yeah. And making these arguments in a context where they had nothing to gain yeah. from making them. Yeah. And yeah. so in, in in that sense, I just have a greater appreciation yeah. for the principled dedication to it and the costliness of it. Yeah. Uh, because when you, when you have a commitment to religious liberty, you have a commitment to decentralizing a claim to power that one religion may want to have over another yeah. in a society. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so I think it's a reminder that when the Baptist tradition speaks of religious liberty, we're, we're speaking about it in a universal, universally yes. applicable sense. Correct. Um, and that's what I think has been at the some of the forefront in, in some of the misunderstandings and discomforts yes. that Baptists, especially in the 20, 20th and 21st century, have had around religious liberty, is that they don't even understand yeah um, our actual origins around religious liberty I, I've said I've said to some colleagues if most Baptists understood how radical the early Baptists were on religious liberty, they probably wouldn't like these radical Baptists.
1: yeah yeah, that's right.
0: So I, I want to build off of Roger Williams a little bit. One of the reasons I really value Roger Williams was he had an emphasis on natural law yes, yeah and you and I have talked about natural law as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, natural law is a thousand different ways to define it. Um, but there is, uh, let's just say Protestants have not had, at least in the 20th century, a rich tradition of appreciating natural law. But I'm noticing, and I discussed this actually on a recent episode with Matthew Frank, mm. our, our friend, I'm, I'm noticing some Protestant resurgence mm-hmm. around issues of natural law. And, uh, this is kind of a generic question, but would love to know, why do you see natural law as a valuable contribution to Christian political philosophy, Christian political thought, and even political philosophy. Yeah.
1: Well, in our current context, with the amount of partisanship that we see, the depth of partisanship that we see in the United States, I think that natural law can be a very uh, helpful kind of um, antidote, um, some some balm Hmm. to soothe some of the partisanship. And I think that – I think a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians alike, uh, would accept many of the features of natural law that we would sort of broadly agree on without necessarily the the theological or the um, sort of religious language. Like, you wouldn't probably find a lot of non-Christians these days to embrace natural law as Thomas Aquinas would have, you know, affirmed it, but – but, um, you know, there, there – I think you would find a lot of people uh, who are not Christians that are sympathetic with the idea that that people can agree on basic standards of right and wrong, right? That um, everybody knows what it's like to, to to have someone talk behind your back mm. and knows how that feels, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people know what it's like to be bullied, you know, whether it be – as a youngster or even in your adult life, and know that it's wrong, that bullying is wrong. And, you know, ever since uh, ever since the Columbine shootings, the country has been uh, in a conversation about bullying, sort of by, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, by fits and starts, but certainly bullying has been—bullying um, was not an issue that the country was talking about in the 80s, but it was after Columbine. And everybody agrees that bullying is wrong, even bullies— Agree that bullying is wrong, (laughs) right? Right. Um, Where does this come from? Surely, it's. I mean, I think that it's. You could persuade a person who is not a Christian that these kinds of standards for right and wrong can't simply be social constructs. They can't simply be contingently produced Mm -hmm. because of the the universal nature of these things. Now, I'm not an ethicist, right? You are an ethicist, but. but but natural law, it seems, can form a basis for a more civil discussion, right. a basis for disagreeing agreeably. We, we, you know, it doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything, but, but 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 agreeing on some broad standards of right and wrong is a, a huge step in the right direction, and natural law helps us frame some of those categories. Right. And you don't have to you don't have to like affirm or have some kind of um, complex understanding of, of natural law tradition but um, it seems that it seems to me that this can be very helpful in our in our very toxic uh, way we talk to each other these days
0: you, you know there's a, a debate happening um, especially in Catholic circles about whether liberal democracy is worth preserving or whether a liberal democracy has the seeds of its own destruction kind of in its own DNA. Uh, And so I I would love to get your thoughts on this debate. Is liberal democracy something that we as Christians should have a vested interest in continuing to preserve and fight for, or is liberal democracy something that, you know, is just going to destroy itself from a thousand cuts of relativism?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll try to answer that question from the standpoint of um, what Tocqueville writes in in Democracy in America— and also, there is a, a good book that's pretty new that came out maybe in twenty seventeen called American Covenant, which is a um, a history of civil religion um, from the Puritans to today. It's written uh, written by um, Philip Philip Gorsky is the, is the uh, scholar's name. He's actually a sociologist at Yale. He's not a historian, but it's a it's a great historical treatment of civil religion. Uh, first of all, Gorsky says that. Uh, uh, c- civil religion, because of its if, because of its it's broad, because it's malleable, and because it's uh, formed and shaped by a, a variety of vo- different voices in American history not just not just white, not just from white perspectives, mm-hmm. uh, not just from white male perspectives. Um, he brings in um, several different different voices that are non-white and uh, and also female into the formation of American civil religion. Politically speaking and socially speaking, civil religion does unify us around common ideas. Mm-hmm. America doesn't have its, its um, roots in, um, you know, an ethnic identity like the French do, for example, right. or like the Russians do, for example. Our, our history is, is, is new. We've only been around for a couple hundred years. Unlike, again, the French, who's, you know, the French are, you know, they find their, their origins at the fall of the Roman Empire. That's pretty far back. So our founding is exceptional. Dare I use the term? <laughs> <laughs> In that uh, America is a nation that's founded on ideas and on ideals hmm. that, um, that to strive for and to to reach for. Lots of scholars are writing on this topic uh, now. Not just the one, not just uh, Gorski that I just cited, and you know those ideals are you know, ideals like the the ones that are are. Articulated in the Declaration of Independence that, that Jefferson writes, of course. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, so they are endowed by their creator uh, with natural rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These, this is, these are ideals that we can all agree on. People on the left can agree on them. People mm-hmm. on the right can agree on them. And so civil religion is sort of formed around this idea, these notions of, of, um, of ideals to strive for. Uh, knowing that we'll never – you know, perhaps we'll never reach perfection hmm. in the pursuit of those ideals. But the act of reaching for them hmm. is a is a good in itself and a unifying thing. And it doesn't mean you just all – everybody has to be white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. Um, you, you can have a pluralistic society that is uh, in pursuit of those ideals because those ideals are universal. Yeah. And they're rooted in the in the uh, the dignity of the human person. John Inazu, another author, you probably have read him about confident pluralism. This is some of the things that come out of that. Um, Then, with what de Tocqueville writes, de Tocqueville writes about um, you know he does a lot. He he thinks deeply about the relationship between the 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 federal government and the states and the localities, the townships. He he writes also that um, democracy itself is. Not an unalloyed good. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we use the term democracy as if it is synonymous with virtue and goodness and righteousness. Sure, things like um, you know, our our democracy is at stake. Well, maybe it, maybe that's okay. You know, democracy is not uh, you know an unalloyed good. Right. The tendency of democracy is to lean towards the tyranny of the majority. And if you're in the so if you're in the majority, that's not so bad, right? Right. Uh, because. You know you're going to be able to make all the rules, but at some point, even the even the majority will be in the minority on some issue. So what then? Well, federalism is what protects minority rights. This is why the the conversation about the uh, abolition of the or undermining of the electoral college is such an important issue that people need to be paying attention to, because if the if the electoral college is done away with directly or indirectly, then we don't have a federalist. Society right. anymore, a federalist polity anymore. Uh, the United States will uh, will cease to be a constitutional republic. The Constitution will have very little meaning because the Constitution is a definition, a, a procedure for the way that various interests in the United States can be reconciled and can be united under one federal government. Simply allowing, you know, allowing the majority to elect the president—that sounds like it's a great idea. It sounds like a, it's a democratic idea. But what happens to minority rights? Right. When competing interests, you know, in those competing interests, one of those is—it's just a winner-take-all, and there's no, there's no formula for protecting minority rights whatsoever. There's no uh, mechanism. Uh, in which minority rights and in the interests of uh, localities that lose are going to be looked out after. Right? This is very, very dangerous.
0: So I want to get your taxonomy then. So if if we're not, everyone always hears America is just democracy. We're, we we prioritize democracy. I'm hearing you say that's not accurate. What what is America then if we're not just democracy writ large?
1: Well, Federalist Number 10, right? James Madison writes Federalist Number 10, and he writes about factions, right? He writes that uh, he, he, he tries to address the concern that republics cannot be large. They have to be small because small republics have fewer factions, fewer competing interests. If you have a, a large republic, then you're going to have that many more competing interests, and it will be inevitable for that republic to not be able to cohere. It will tear itself apart. Madison says – no, you want to—it's okay to have a large republic. If you have a, the large—in fact, the larger republic that you have, and the more factions that you have, and the more competing interests that you have, the better it is. Because you won't ever have one particular interest group or faction dominate the rest. Uh, they will all be in competition with one another, um, and they, you, you will, it will be impossible to have one particular faction always rule. So this is, a, this is tyranny of the majority that he's, he's addressing. Um, some people think that well, you know, it's not 1850 anymore. So, you know, states don't have the kind of power they don't have the kind of identity that they did, you know, like in 1861 when they when the southern states state seceded from the union. Now we have uh, states are more like provinces, like in Canada or something. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's probably true in a certain sense, but but states still are the representatives of. Particular interests, economic interests, political interests, religious interests—they still represent uh, unique identities. So, Kentucky,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Kentucky has different interests than Washington State uh, because of its geography, because of its economy, because of what it what it produces, because of its uh, its proximity, its location to centers of cultural influence, political power, and so forth. So. Kentucky, while it doesn't have the same kind of state identity it did you know, in the early republic, Kentucky still has uh, unique interests. And who's going to look out after those interests if there's no electoral college in a presidential election? Hmm.
0: Um, That's well said.
1: Yeah. So uh, we, we don't have those kind of sectional differences like, like the United States did in 1850. But we do still have interests, and the states are very – they're a very powerful way to sort of contain and, and understand and identify what those interests are. And so if, if the Electoral College is gone, then the federalism that balances the intre- the competing interests of the states is, is no longer there in the context of a presidential election. And in that context, that's going to bleed down in ways that are <laughs> almost impossible to uh, to foresee what the effects would be. But one thing I can say is that uh, it will make the Constitution irrelevant in very key ways. Some of those ways, we don't even really know what, what that would look like.
0: Man, that is fascinating. I think we could have a whole discussion yeah. just yeah <laughs> on this alone. Yeah. Hey, so we have just a few minutes left. I mm. want to turn more towards the personal angle and just talk about a little bit about what has formed you in your past. Mm. So uh, who are a few of your most important intellectual influences that have shaped you in your worldview?
1: Mm. Well, uh, gosh, I, I don't even hardly know where to start. Um, I have to say that uh, I, uh, the people that I, I admire and the people that I read a lot of, I read a lot of Alan Gelzo's work, his work on uh, 19th century, his work on Lincoln, his work on the Civil War, his work on Reconstruction. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a big admirer of uh, Gelzo's work and his writings. I love all of his books. And uh, I love the way he thinks. Mm-hmm. I love the way he does history. Uh, I love John Fia's writings. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the way John Fia writes. I love the way he thinks. Um, I love how John Fia is is um, so consistent um, in the way he applies and also in the way he instructs about how to think historically. Uh, I've I've learned a great deal from him um, with regard to how to think like a historian. Hmm. And so, John Fia is very important to me as a as a Christian historian as well. Um, the work, writings of Mark Knoll, George Marsden uh, have been extremely important to me. George Marsden's work on um, on Christian scholarship uh-huh. have been very formative uh, for me. Um, Beth Barton Schweiger, uh, who um, has an essay in a book called Confessing History, which was edited by John Fia and Jay Green and Eric Miller, came out in 2010. She has an essay that was extremely formative for me, uh, uh, an essay that uh, – was almost life-changing for me. It was paradigm-shifting for me. She wrote an essay in that book called Seeing Things. And uh, it's a it's a it's it's an article on historical empathy, hmm. what it means to um, extend love to the dead, wow. which I think is a deeply profound and deeply Christian
0: hmm. thing
1: to do. Do Christians owe, do we owe anything to the dead? Are, are we um, supposed to love the dead? You know, I think the answer is yes. She, she persuaded me hmm. that the answer is yes. And the way, we, uh, the way we extend empathy to the dead, even those dead who did horrible things, we tell the truth about them. Mm. That's how we extend love to them.
0: So that was really thoughtful. I, I have not considered that uh, historical empathy, mm. I believe you said. Yeah. Uh, influential books that have shaped you, which I know you're a scholar, so you read books for a living. But surely some stand out. Yeah, I know you mentioned some right there, but yeah. other yeah. books.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I, I'm sitting here in my office, and I've got titles all around me, and I'm drawing a blank. I'd have to say that um, Alan Gels' book on on Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer, President, hmm. was, a, was a formative book for me. It's a religious biography yeah. of Lincoln. And um, Lincoln, of course, the question about whether or not was he a Christian is a question that people ask all the time. And uh, the answer is he probably was not a a confessing Christian, but that's not to say that that the Bible and Christianity were not deeply yeah. uh, important to him and 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 formulaic for right. him, right? shaping
0: a, a moral grammar. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely, and not just uh, these aren't just words to him. I mean, these are convictions that he is that he is saying, especially like in the second inaugural address, um, where he he talks about. He tries to make sense of the theological ramifications of the war. Right? And God's sort of God's um, posture toward the United States in the war, that uh, he, he had a view of justice. His view of justice was pretty simple there's what's right and there's what's wrong. He, uh, he bristled uh, whenever people would say that the uh, United States, uh, you know, God is on our side. Right. You know, and he was always quick to say, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't know whose side God is on, but I want us to be found on God's side. Right. Uh, I, th- I think that's, that's beautiful. Beautiful and of course it's informed by the Bible. So much of what he he did and and said and lived by was formed by the Bible. Um, other books that I've that I've read carefully and and, and read a lot of times, uh, I'd have to say that uh, Mark Knowles' America's God. Hmm. It was a, a formational book, and that book came out in what two thousand three or something like that. And I remember reading it in my PhD program, and I think I've read that book three times uh, over the years. Um, I, I, I love the way. That Mark Knoll traces the intellectual history of, of America and American uh, religion um, from the colonial period to the Civil War. Um, I, uh, I have to say also that um, Daryl Charles's book, uh, J. Daryl Charles wrote a book on natural law for Protestants. The book is called uh, natural Retrieving Natural Law. Natural yeah, law. Great book. I read that book. That book is not an old book. It came out in 2012. And I just read it a couple years ago. It's one of the best books I've ever I've ever read helped me to, as a Protestant, who had not thought that much about natural law, uh, it, it really set my mind ablaze when it came to thinking about natural law. Wow, I wanted to get my hands on everything, on everything that was yeah. about natural law. Another one is by a, a, a former, he's an emeritus professor now, I guess, but his his name is Jack Green, and he wrote a book called The Intellectual Construction of America. It's about American uh, ideas of American exceptionalism from 1492 to 1800. Um, which is one of the best books I've ever read. I, I say that about a lot of books, I guess, yeah. but it, it truly is. Uh, one of the best books I've ever read it was it was paradigm shifting for me. Um, what he talks about is how when when the Europeans encountered um, North America, what what was happening was something brand new, something innovative, something unprecedented. And he said that uh, when the Europeans came to America, they had a choice. They could either allow the land and the indigenous people shape their worldview, or they could act upon the land and the people that they found. Human nature being what it is, there's really only one option. They're the ones with the power. They're the ones with the guns. They're the ones with the wealth. They're the ones with the technology. They're going to act upon, right? It's a study in human nature, Hmm. what happened in the period of colonization and exploration. And that's an enormous theological implications, as well as nationalistic, imperial, historical. I mean, you just go on and on and on. So that was a very important book uh, for me as well. Uh, Christopher Lash's work, uh, Culture of Narcissism, hmm. was an was a important book for me. Henry May's book on the Enlightenment in America was also very important for me in shaping my, my, my mind and my ideas. So those are a few. That's great. Um, yeah.
0: I always love listeners getting some good recommendations to go add to their Amazon yeah. list. Yeah. So that's yeah. That's great. Last question. Yeah. If you could go back in history and meet one person and have a prolonged conversation with one person, who would it be? Jesus. You can't say Jesus. <laughs> I knew that's two tokens.
1: That. I know. No, I, I would. I will see Jesus one day. Uh, but um, aside from Jesus, you know, I, I would. Love to go back in time and meet Theodore Roosevelt.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: I, I love Theodore Roosevelt. And it's um, it's a pet peeve of mine when people refer to him as Teddy Roosevelt. Theodore. It's Theodore. Theodore he-, he-, he never allowed anybody in his presence to call him Teddy. And he hated that nickname. No one dared call him that to his face. So we must call him Theodore because that is what he would have wanted us to call him.
0: Well said, and I I will henceforth (laughs) refer to him as President Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah.
1: No, he wouldn't have wanted President. Colonel. Colonel. Colonel Roosevelt. (laughs) The colonel. That's what he he wanted to be called after his presidency was over.
0: Well, Dr. Wilsey, thanks for spending some time with us. This was encouraging and illuminating. And uh, if you are not familiar with Dr. John Wilsey, you should be. You need to buy his book on— American exceptionalism and civil religion, it's terrific. Uh follow him on Twitter, you're JD Wilsie. We'll yes. Correct? Yes. Wanna thank you listeners for uh spending an hour or so with us and uh, we'll look forward to the next episode of Counter Thank you.